RPC Radio. Radio. Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered. Welcome to the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. Coming up in this episode. I, I think one of the biggest challenges NGAs still have to this day, and I think it goes across the board, is in a lot of places, the role of the NGA is not truly understood. And I think the reality is, it's for us as NGAs to really get out and continue to push our message about the value we bring. My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner in the law firm RPC, and in each episode I am joined by a guest and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. And this week we have Richard Clapham, and we're going to discuss the role of the modern MGA. Richard has worked in insurance for almost four decades. He started out as a series of brokers, but spent five years at Markel, where he ended up as Chief Operating Officer for Professional and Financial Risks, and then 13 years at Catlin as Underwriting Director. Outside of insurance, Richard is an international standards official for equestrian eventing and has officiated at every Summer Olympics since 2004. More relevantly for this podcast, in 2016, Richard became the group CEO of Dual Group. Dual is one of the world's largest international MGAs, or Managing General Agents, and the role of the modern MGA is what we're going to discuss today. So, Richard, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Peter. And uh, as far as I can tell, uh, you've been in insurance almost since leaving school. Had insurance always been an ambition for you as you were growing up, or or was it something you fell into? Actually, that word fall is uh, very apt about the way I actually came to get myself into insurance. And uh, I have to confess, it wasn't on the uh, top of the list of things I was going to do, but um, I ended up literally falling off a horse. That sadly meant due to the injury I suffered, I was unable to do a lot for a while. So I decided to occupy my time by looking for a temporary employment role, which ended up in insurance in London. And uh, I've never turned back since. Excellent. And uh, our second ever podcast um, with uh, Tim Jones of MPR Underwriting was uh, was also on MGAs. And Modesty permits me to say that it's actually quite good. Um, But in this episode, we want to build on that and uh, spend more time focusing on the strategic role of MGAs in the current market. Um, But just for those who haven't heard the the, the first podcast or who don't know what an MGA is, we need to start with a quick reminder of what uh, an MGA, a managing general agent, actually is. So, So could you talk us through your definition of MGA An MGA or a managing general agent acts as an agent for the insurer. So our responsibility is to the insurance companies that support us. And therefore, we have a contract with them, which is called the Delegate Authority Contract, under which it outlines the terms, conditions and the authorities we have to operate on their behalf. So so, so if I'm getting this right, uh, you're saying that an MGA is an agent of the insurer. So you are doing functions that an insurer might normally be assumed to do. So what functions does an MGA normally do? Presumably it's the underwriting, but is it underwriting and claims or, 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 or how does it work? So I think in reality, and this is where you can see from country to country, different forms of MGAs or MGUs or general agents 
and they are called different things in different countries. And the reality is they all operate to varying degrees of authority to carry out underwriting services for insurers. And it may simply be from providing a platform on which the insurer can put their products or to the full spectrum, full service spectrum, where it can go from accessing the clients, marketing and development through to the underwriting of the business and all the way through to the claims and claims handling and service, so a full service spectrum. And, and you will find many variants across the globe and across different product lines. And uh, with any MGA, therefore, the, the, the crucial relationship is the one with the insurer. But how would you describe that relationship between MGA and insurer? Is it a relationship of equals? How does it work? I take a very simple view on it, actually, which is no insurer, no MGA. So they are very much our lifeblood and we can't operate without them. But in any relationship, it's a partnership. And the best MGA insurer relationship is where there's properly and significant aligned interest. But the real critical piece is we're providing extension to that insurer of their ability to access clients, access distribution, access products, operate in different parts of the world, operate in different ways, because not every insurer is set up to operate in a particular product area or indeed a particular product segment. So why do you think the insurance industry is increasingly structuring itself um, in this way? Because we've seen a significant growth in the number of MGAs over the last few years. So I guess there's two questions, really. What's in it for insurers and what's in it for the MGAs? So let's start with the first one. What is in it for insurers? But Why is it in their interests to work through MGAs? So I think if you looked at it from an insurer's point of view, you're continually looking at ways you can develop, access new clients and grow your business. And clearly, you can turn around and invest in that yourself, or you can look at partners that can support you along that route. And I think the real dynamic we're seeing now is that MGAs are able to attract some of the best underwriting talent in the market. But another real critical part, and it's where a lot of insurers are looking and have looked over many years to create international distribution where brokers have been absolutely excellent is crafting that distribution and sourcing the business and bringing it to the insurers but an mga we have to carry out that distribution function as well and just to give an example in jewel now we work with eight and a half thousand brokers but the other key part is in crafting that distribution you get a lot closer to the client, which often is a broker in most MGA's case, but some are also direct, or to the end client. And a real part of making a difference as an MGA is listening to your client's needs and adapting products to the way they need those products. So we're pulling together distribution, technology, and underwriting, and offering that to our carrier partners on a very cost-effective basis. And another critical part you'll find in most MGAs out there is agility. The speed to be able to move and adapt 
adapt to changing situations. And it goes back to the earlier question you asked. It's truly a partnership, which is what part can we be? And that's where we have to listen to our insurers. What do they need? Because we can craft that as well. So it's listening to the partners on one end, our insurers. It's listening to our brokers and our clients on the other end. And we have a unique place to be able to bring those all together, which is why I think MJs right now are really thriving in this market. And in that answer, you touched upon um, products as well. And certainly my experience through the podcast, talking to one or two smaller MGAs, is you get a feeling that they have the scope to be innovative. I was just wondering, in some ways, are MGAs the research and development lab for insurers? So I think if you look across history, a significant part of product innovation has come through MGA. And Renewable Energy be one, Cyber be another example, where effectively we brought together one pool of expertise that centres around the innovation and then worked across multiple partners, which actually reduces volatility, particularly in those early startup stages. And, and critically is... MGA's ability to invest, invest in new products, because we can turn around and look at those products, invest one team and work across multiple balance sheets to turn around and achieve the solution we're really looking for, rather than an insurer where you can have to do that under one balance sheet. It's a completely different dynamic. And I think there is a lot of opportunity out there, but MGA's really do have to invest up front. And it can take a number of years before we get a return on investment. And I think that's often missed because people talk around alignment of interest. We're very aligned because we invest upfront day one. So we've been talking about what's in it for insurers. And, and I think we touched upon distribution, technology, talent, innovation, investment, and agility. Um, but what, what's in it for the MGAs? We talk about being able to get out and grow a truly sustainable business. And the reality in an MGA, what you're looking to do is turn around and bring together that distribution and insurer partner into one place. And we really talk about developing the best underwriting business, which is quite a bold statement in the insurance world. But I actually genuinely think with all the component parts MGAs have, they can grow some of the best sustainable underwriting businesses because they pull together all those key component parts of talent, distribution, data, technology. Someone recently told me that, uh, and I quote, um, it is difficult for MGAs to operate outside of niches. Um, and I guess most people, perhaps, when thinking of MGA, will have in mind kind of a, a small startup that's focused on a specific area. You've mentioned cyber or uh, renewable energy. Um, but your company, Dual, follows a different model, doesn't it? So, so please tell us about Dual and how you fit together, what your structure is and, and, and what your strategy is. If I look at Dual today, so I said we, we started off 24 years ago. We now partner with about 70 insurer partners. We have 8,500 brokers we deal with across 19 countries and excess of 50 products. But I would say in all those areas, our underwriters absolutely specialist in the areas they operate. And we've built up a business now that's underwriting just around $2.8 billion of gross written premium. Wow. So what you're saying is it's it's a much bigger scale than perhaps some 
MGAs, but actually the heart of the business is exactly the same. It is providing innovation and being nimble, but in lots of specific areas. I mean, we very much talk about being local. So we're local with global presence. Just take a product, directors and office insurance. The requirements and laws vary country by country. And the reality is we've got people in place who understand underwriting DNO in Australia, which is different to Italy. And another really good example, it's not just about underwriting, it's about the method of distribution. If you look at the geography of somewhere like Australia, and we've got one of the most sophisticated digital marketing capabilities in any part of Jewel in Australia, and it's a key part of our success and delivery out there. But that's because that is the way our brokers want to operate. But, you know, Italian brokers and German brokers want to operate differently. And our model is we distribute differently in each country. So really, we respect the way the countries want to operate. So I think if you try and take a global approach and push it down, that's why I think a lot of insurers have found growing international distribution really hard because it's been one size fits across the piece. But the reality is clearly we've got some common sounds, common ways of approaching, and we know where our collective strengths are. But also our strength is being local in the local markets. So that's where that sort of specialist niche, you could almost say, I'm not sure I like the word niche so much. I think specialist is good. <laughs> we truly understand the areas we're in and why we're in them. And that therefore means we can very clearly articulate the value we bring. There's a criticism of MJs that I've, I've seen that they all they do is add another link um, in the insurance chain. And therefore, that has the consequence of increasing costs and therefore premiums. Um, but what would be your response to that? I think the reality is MJs, in a lot of cases, provide access, particularly to the SME market. And there are a lot of SME companies across the world who need insurance. And the reality is we found a way of using technology, product and crafting to do that in a cost-effective way that our insurer partners can't do. And therefore, I think we're providing a real service and we're not just another link in the chain. We're providing real access to real customers in real time who need insurance products. So we're actually helping solve the problem, which is how do we get insurance distributed more widely? We've already talked about the growth in, in MGAs um, recently and the reasons behind that. But I, I read an article um, a few months ago, December 2021, that suggested that the, the tide may be turning against um, MGAs. The theory being that uh, the current hard market meant that insurers were achieving all that they needed in terms of revenue growth just through their own premium income. I presume that's an analysis that you don't agree with, but how do you respond to that? So I think it's interesting, the MJA, the UK uh, MJA Association, are only now talking about seizing the market. And I'm, I'm certainly on the side of the MJA. I think there are significant opportunities out there. And the reality is we are an underwriting business and we have to be able to underwrite across the cycle and provide that underwriting profitability. And partnership, we've talked about all the way through. We are an integral part of our insurer's ability to access business into the market. So if we're writing correctly across the cycle, are an integral partner in their business, then we work the cycle with our carrier partners. So it's totally in our control, provided we're proving value, provided we're doing the right underwriting job, 
providing we're accessing business they can't otherwise access, and provided it's providing them another form of diversification across their whole proposition to their shareholders. As I said, ultimately, we're an integral part to our insurers and their value proposition to their shareholders. And I think, I mean, the, the, just looking at that, the, the quote again that I, I read out, it seems to place a very narrow interpretation on why insurers would use MGAs. I, it's solely a way of generating new business, whereas everything that you've said so far suggests that the relationship is much more complex than that. It's not simply an insurer going to an MGA stating, we need new insurance in this area and we're going to use you. Um, it's, it's much more complex than that. The, the MGA is a part of, of the, the holistic insurance system. I think that the biggest challenges MGAs still have to this day, and I think it goes across the board, is in a lot of places, the role of the MGA is not truly understood. Because it's not, we're not simply just moved by market changes. We're not a sort of craze that comes in, we're great for a soft market, and we're bad for a hard market, because actually that in itself is almost reverse logic. Because if you go back to your earlier question, you say we're just another link and cost in the chain. It was a very strange time to be adding costs in a soft market when market profitability is already under pressure. And I think the reality is it's for us as MGAs to really get out and continue to push our message about the value we bring and why we are an integral part of an insurer partner's proposition it's a partnership model that is really critical and i think when you're in in a significant position in in any market you've got to help drive the market and help drive the presence of mgas because we clearly feel that an mga is significant value to the insurance market i said if we can do our part to help take more insurer partners on that journey to come and support us and support our fellow mgas that's a great place to be and um, in, in 2020, I hope these stats are right, um, in 2020, out of the top 250 MGA groups uh, globally, 55 were owned by uh, brokers, 28 were owned by insurers, but the other 167, um, or two-thirds, were, were independent. And there's also a huge amount of fragmentation in the market. So the top five groups accounted for just 18.2% of worldwide revenues. So there are a huge number of MGAs, a lot of whom are actually quite small. How do you think that market is going to evolve over the coming years? Is there going to be consolidation, do you think? Or is there going to be increased fragmentation? So I think let's take the US as an example. I think if you went back a few years, they would turn around and say it was a $60 billion MGA market. And I think the considered view, that market's now grown to $100 billion. So clearly MGAs are growing this insignificant. I think there's about 1,000 MGAs out there. In the UK, I think we're actually getting to similar, sort of, not in dollar terms, but a number of MGAs are getting to similar numbers. I think there is a significant opportunity now for MGAs to grow across Europe. There are also significant presence in Canada and significant in Australia and New Zealand. But I think rather like insurance companies, rather like brokers. I think everybody has different areas in the market they tend to specialise in and they have different places to play. Um, And the reality is, I think there's opportunities for all size of MGAs in different areas of markets across the world. And it's ultimately continuing to identify where we add value can justify being in that space and where we can pull that together. So I think we'll see similar dynamics. I think even... 
within the broker-owned NGAs, you have to look at, there are different types of NGAs owned by brokers that do different pieces. And I think that is the beauty of the NGA market. It's the agility we have to turn around and recognize opportunities to provide real value and real products. And that's why I think innovation is going to come more to the forefront in NGAs. I think there's going to be more innovation in NGAs in the coming years than we've seen in previous. And, and is, there, is there prospect that NGAs, as they get bigger and bigger, will they actually in some areas at least, actually we may become an insurer ourselves and start arranging the capacity. Is, is that a temptation? And if not, why not? I think the reality is, and if you look recently, and a number of um, MGAs have created their own Lloyd syndicates. And I think ultimately it's looking at how you bring capital to help support the products that you're looking to deliver. And there are multiple ways of doing it. One of them may be creating your own capacity vehicle, either using your own capital, using third-party capital. And, and obviously, as we're all evolving, we have to keep on looking at the most effective way to bring capital behind the products we have. Because clearly, the cost-effectiveness of capital is a critical part in pricing risk, which is a critical part in the cost to the end customer. But we do need to look at more ways of attracting capital into the MGA space. And I think you referenced earlier, are we another link or cost in the chain? I think one of the challenges that's been out there and continues to be out there is the cost of capital itself. And where we have to be really careful is, I still think there's a lot of opportunity not to duplicate the cost between our partners and ourselves, because that actually does increase cost in the place. And I think that for me is a challenge to MGAs and insurers, is how do we actually transact insurance more cost effectively? And really, the really important thing to me is avoid duplication of effort, because that's been probably one of the biggest historical challenges where we've ended up doing the same job twice collectively. I'm finding this fascinating because uh, most industries, their structure it's fairly solid and it may well be that there's digitization and there's changes like that. But it's rare that, that the structure of an industry changes, but actually that the increase in MGAs suggests that with insurance, you know, these are structural changes, aren't they? The essence of insurance is the same money in through premiums, money out through claims, but the way in which insurance is structuring itself uh, is, is changing. And uh, I, I personally, I find that absolutely fascinating. I think one of the big challenges sits out there from the insurance market is legacy and its legacy cost of multiple operating systems and a place that the MGAs have really got themselves into is that technology piece. I know we, we haven't touched on it that much so far, but the reality is we can adapt and adopt technology a lot quicker. So we're operating our products on new technology without all the inhibitors that legacy brings into our insurers so in a lot of cases. And at that point, because we're using modern technology, an absolute critical part is data is such a significant part of our future and being able to use it effectively that actually we can bring the technology in that does that in a cost-efficient manner that will take those operating legacy system years to get at. So dealing with legacy through opening up opportunities to MGAs to turn around and 
use technology, use data, and really move the agenda on for some of our carrier partners by getting quicker access to market is an absolutely key piece. And you mentioned data there. I was, I was at a conference last week where there was a lot of discussion around data and the fact that vast quantities of data is, is created by the insurance world, but there's very little access to it. Presumably, MGA is actually a way of making much greater use of the data that is generated. I thought you were going to take me on to one of my favourite topics there, which is the one thing I struggle with, and it's an integral part to MGAs, is we transmit our data traditionally on boardrows. And these boardrows have got prescribed formats and they've got an immense amount of data in there. But if you talk of a lot of insurers, they don't have an ability to take that data and put it anywhere. They take bits of it. So we're creating all this data and we're just not using it, which, which is clearly wrong. And we talk about cost and cost efficiency. To produce something you're not using is definitely wrong. But the reality is data is going to come a more critical part of the way we understand our business and drive the solutions we need to. You know, a lot of underwriting process is traditional and we need to change the way we think about underwriting to take that data in and use technology to do a lot of the hard sort of input work that traditionally has been done in that underwriting space. Because, you know, I'm a great believer in underwriters do what they're really good at, which is underwrite. So the more we can allow our underwriters underwriting time, because two things, they can provide more time providing client solutions and looking at the risks they've got. And going back to our earlier comment, is actually ability to innovate is greater because you actually have time for it. So I think technology's got a great place to play in opening up the market. And uh, we're here in 2022. What does an MGA need to do now or continue to do in order to survive and thrive? If, if the MGA market is going to continue to grow over the next few years, what, what is it that the MGAs absolutely 100% have to focus on? We clearly always need to understand our value proposition. Where are we providing value? How do we provide it? And actually, how can we make it better? So we're always completely relevant and a critical part of the strategic partner to our insurers. But the reality is to do that, I always say it's going to come down to talent, distribution, technology and data. Brilliant. And uh, before we move on to my final question, I can't ignore the fact that uh, you've been at the last five Summer Olympics, not just as a, a watcher, but as an official. So how did you become so involved in equestrian eventing and which was your favourite Summer Olympics? I've got to say London, haven't I? <laughs> but uh, I, mean, I mean, the interesting part about the Olympics is every single one is unique and they are very representative of the country that's hosting it. And to me, that's the absolutely critical part because an official who's been privileged to go and participate, it's our job to help them make their Olympics the best Olympics. So I'll take away the London comment for that one. <laughs> I probably was a fairly mediocre rider um, and realised that um, that wasn't going to be a profession for me. But actually, I've built up a lot of friends within the circle. And... By officiating in the UK allowed me to sort of maintain that position. And then I was very fortunate to get the opportunity to go to Athens, which was the first one I went to. And sort of, I have to say, it was it was eye-opening experience. And I said, if you ever want the best management training course, 
go to Olympic Games because you probably find you're working with 15, 16 different countries of officials. And therefore, you've got people who are having to work together where language is a challenge. And the other fascinating part I found is culturally, the games change from country to country because each culture is different. So the speed of getting things done and things like that, or, or the way you can ask for things, you have to moderate the country you're in because otherwise you just don't get anywhere. So it's sort of, it's been a fascinating journey. And as I understand it, eventing is a love that you share with David Howden as well, isn't it? He, he's, a, he's a big fan of eventing. He is. Uh, two of his daughters event and he actually now has probably one of the uh, leading events at his home in Cornbury House in Oxfordshire, where he runs uh, an international event once a year. And you're involved in that, presumably? Surprisingly, yes. <laughs> anyway, finally, Richard, the, the absolute final question. What bit of advice would you give to, to an individual who's thinking of entering the insurance profession now? What, what, what words of wisdom would you have for them? I think... It's an amazing profession. I think the challenge is we don't sell it very well to schools and to encourage people in the industry. And I'm really glad to turn around and see that as an industry doing a lot more to turn around and make insurance an open opportunity to lots of people. I think actually diversity is a challenge in the insurance market as well. And, and that is, I think, because we've not been as open as we could have been in the past. So I would say to anybody, I think it is a great career. I think there are many opportunities in many different areas of business. It's got more variety, I think, you could ever expect. And those opportunities are constantly changing across your career. And I've only got to take my own example. I've moved from broking to underwriting to an MGA world, from smaller organisations to larger. So I think there is a raft of opportunities out there. We have to do more to make ourselves an open industry for people to come into it. But I, I would just turn around and say to anybody have a good look at insurance, turn around and find some people who are in it and ask them to explain why they've enjoyed it and why it's been such a great place to work. And I have to say, I've had fun across my entire career. It's been, um, been challenges, but I will say, I will say to any of the teams, ultimately, whatever you do, you have to have fun. Thank you, Richard. That was absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. RPC Radio. Radio. Thank you so much for listening to Insurance Covered, which is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, you will also love our other podcasts, Taxing Matters and Money Covered, plus The Fix, which is co-hosted by my colleague Kelly Thompson. If you want to be a guest on Insurance Covered, please email me at peter.mansfield at rpc.co.uk. Thank you, and I hope you have a great day.